You're listening to a podcast produced by the Henry M. Jackson School of International Studies, the Centre for West European Studies and the EU Centre at the University of Washington. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit our website at jsis.washington.edu forward slash cwes euc. Salai will talk to us about climate policy in the European Union. He is the 2017-18 EU Fellow at uh, the University of Washington, and he is also a civil servant uh, working in the European Commission, where he's uh, responsible for uh, climate policy, and in particular has been responsible for monitoring the implementation of EU member states' obligations to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions by 20% by 2020. And he will talk to us about uh, the history and uh, some of the current challenges facing uh, climate policy in the European Union. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Jürgen Salai. Well, thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. So, um, I'm uh, indeed working at the European Commission for European Union, um, and the Commission, you can compare a bit with, is the executive branch of the European Union, as perhaps some of you know. Uh, so, it's comparable, say, to a federal uh, department or a national ministry, and we are organized them according to uh, the policy areas we are responsible for. So, I happen to work for one of the smaller departments of the European Commission, which is called the Climate Action Department, and we are then responsible for climate policy in the European Union. That's going to be the subject of my talk today. And uh, I've been there for almost 15 years, uh, working on all kinds of different aspects of climate policy, national negotiations, EU relations with other countries. In my case, it was Russia and Eastern Europe mostly. Um, and then on EU uh, internal climate policy and legal instruments such as the EU emission trading system. And for the past uh, six, seven years, I've been uh, responsible for monitoring member states' obligations uh, under EU legislation to reduce their emissions of greenhouse, gas, uh, greenhouse gases to 2020 and also preparing new legislation for 2030. And I'm going to tell you more about that in detail today. Um, so it means in my daily work I have a lot of interaction with the different kind of stakeholders that is mostly then of course uh, counterparts in the member states, the countries who are members of the European Union who are uh, responsible for climate policy in their countries, with industry, with NGOs, with parliamentarians in the European Parliament. So it's a very interesting job in that sense that you learn different kind of stakeholder groups in different kinds of countries and you get a very nice overview of what's going on in your, in your union, in your region, in your continent. Um, and um, the reason why I'm here this academic year is that we have a fellowship program where a limited number of officials like myself can stay in academic year at the university, some of us in the United States, some in other places where we do outreach like I'm doing today, explaining EU policy. Um, and we also do some research on our own. And the reason uh, actually why I chose this part of the United States 
is that a lot of things are happening on local and state level climate action, and that's the topic I want to learn more what's going on on state level and local level cities, uh, municipalities, uh, counties across northwestern western United States. And um, I hope then to be able to combine these two things, uh, speaking, outreaching, and learning a bit myself until next summer. So I'm very happy to be here. Um, what I usually do when I do my presentation is I will start with a small EU quiz to check how up to date you are with you. So let's start then with the EU quiz. It's going to be very simple. You're going to have six questions. Uh, and no devices, no internet, no cheating, no help from friends. Right? And you're going to get six questions. So let's start with the first one. And you have to, you know, uh, check yourself. So I'm going to trust you on how many correct answers you're going to have at the end. The first question is simple. How many people live in the European Union, do you think? Do you think it's open to A, please raise your hands, 400 million. Okay, no bids for that. Number B, alternative is 450 million. Okay. How many think they are 500 million, the Europeans in the European Union? Quite a few of you. Okay. And the last alternative, 550. Okay, the right answer is 500. Actually, it's like about 510, but it's closest to 500. There was a fair amount of you who got that right. Very good. We move on to the second question, which is about what kind of type of countries we have to deal with. Uh, quite a few countries, as you know, have kings or queens in Europe. Now, which of these four countries do not? Does not have a, it's not a monarchy. If you think Belgium is the one, that's not bad. Okay, one guess on that. Denmark, Finland, Netherlands. And the right answer is that it's Finland, the only country that is a republic. And they're actually celebrating their centenary. They're 100 years now in December, actually. And I think they even have some celebrations in Seattle. There's a strong, as maybe you know, Finnish community, historically in Washington State, actually one of the largest, I think, in North America. Okay, that was two down, four more to go. Next question. Which is the most spoken language in the European Union? I mean now as a first language, right? How many, which of these languages have the highest amount of first uh, native speakers in the European Union? Is it English? B, French? You think it's number C, German? Or you think it's Spanish? It's German, indeed. Uh, and uh, as you will see in the European Parliament, if you go there, for example, where all the members of the Parliament can speak their own language, you will find that about one-seventh, or even more, of all the delegates, or the members, have German as their first language. Because it's not only Germans and Austrians, you have a few from Luxembourg, we used to have one from Belgium, because Belgium had three official languages, French, Dutch, and German, and from South Tyrolia in Italy. So indeed, it's a useful language to know in Europe, not only if you're interested in football. Four. Now it's a really tricky one. No, this one is not so tricky, perhaps. This I expect you to know. Otherwise, you will lose points on your graders. But, uh, okay, how many member states in your opinion? Do you think it's 25? Hands up. 26? 
27, 28. Very good. That's the first <coughs> time ever so far that people actually got it right, the majority, and I think everyone in the room here. We're still 28. As of March 29th, we might be 27. Two more questions. This is a bit more difficult, perhaps. How many official languages in European Union? You think it's 20? Anyone going for 22? Number uh, alternative three C twenty four. Okay, and the last option twenty six. It's twenty four languages, official languages. So indeed, if we go back again to the European Parliament, if you ever visit Strasbourg or Brussels, uh, the two seats of the European Parliament, and you go to a plenary session, you will find simultaneous interpretation between twenty four languages. Each MEP, member of the European Parliament, has the right to speak for, for his own language, of course, because they're elected from their constituencies in their countries, so they cannot be expected that they speak any other language. Um, I think someone sometime uh, proposed that we should go back to how it was in the Middle Ages, everyone should be speaking Latin, because then everyone would have to speak a second language. <laughs> but I don't think it will work anymore. And some people think it should be English, right? So we have strong, of course, movements and ideas to simplify this. But I think as a democratic right, it's a very important thing. And it's, I can tell you from my own experience, having sit, sat in negotiations and planning sessions, uh, speaking in your own language, when you have professional interpretation, is a big advantage. You always express yourself much better than in the second or third language. But uh, sometimes you have a very odd situation where uh, a representative speaks in a second or third language because they think interpretation is somehow, you know, lost in translation, you know. And it, you will have the weirdest things coming on. They're, they're actually not speaking as well. So it would have been better if they spoke in their own language, at least my opinion. Okay, let's wrap this up. Uh, anyone here have scored five so far? No? Okay. Four? Good. Let's see now. Next one. Very important question. Which EU member state won the European Championship in football, and I mean soccer now, right? Real football, last year? You think it was France. France won. You think Germany won the European Championship? You think it was Portugal? Or you think it was Spain? The right answer is Portugal. They got their first major title. Actually, France did very well, but in the end, they lost no, Okay, so you see, it's not only politics that's an important geography, culture is also very important, right? Okay, well, I think you did pretty well because I saw uh, many scoring, uh, choosing the right answer. Okay, so now after this suspense, let's get serious and start with my presentation. Okay, so what I want to share with you today is uh, first explaining a bit to you. I think you are pretty uh, well uh, read and prepared for this, but I tell you a bit about European Union how it works in very short general terms, because that's the background backdrop for all policy making in Europe, of course. Then I move on to climate policy, my major topic of today, and a bit heavier than on climate and energy legislation, uh, what we have in place, what we're planning to do. And then, uh, as a fourth part, I'm going to go in a bit on international uh, uh, climate 
negotiations, the Paris Agreement, the EU's relation to that, and so on. And I hope that we will have a good time because uh, at the end, uh, for questions and answers. Um, and if something is unclear or you have a, you know, a direct question, please just go ahead during my presentation. So that's what I have for you today. Um, and I think it's always important to uh, try to summarize what you're going to tell. And I think these are the key messages of today's presentation, more or less. Uh, and if you forget everything else, try to remember a few of these points. Um, firstly, um, I think what is evident is that climate action, EU climate policy, like environment policy, is based on a very strong tradition of multilateralism in the European Union. Not only because, per definition, we are a multilateral organization, but also internationally, we have always worked very actively with other groups of countries, mostly under UN bodies, to solve global environmental problems. And that goes for climate policy as well. Um, and I think for those of you who are policy wonks who are interested in political science, how policy is shaped and changed over time, I, I would argue that climate policy is a very interesting case study because it has evolved very intensively, uh, very fast, uh, over a sh relatively short period of, of years. And a lot of things have happened. And we have had, at least in the European Union, to try out different things that we have had them to review and are still reviewing because the, the topic in itself is changing. And it turns out that some of the tools and instruments that we design needs to be improved. So, you know, it's a very interesting area to study. All kinds of different aspects. Implementation, how negotiations went, uh, what are the drivers, these kind of stuff. Um, and as you will see, I hope from my presentation is that climate legislation is then a combination of EU-wide laws that are equal, valid for the whole territory of the European Union, 500 million 28 countries, but also then depending, of course, on national action. Um, so this interaction is also very interesting and important. Uh, important principles of climate policy in the European Union is cost-effectiveness. Uh, legislators are very much focused on what results do we get, how much will it cost. And they're also very much focused on fairness, meaning that we should have uh, fair policies uh, given the different circumstances for the different member states. I will tell you more about that in a moment. So fairness, cost-effectiveness, and using market-based instruments are key principles of climate policy. Um, the good news is that we have been quite successful. We have managed to decouple uh, greenhouse gas emissions from GDP growth. So that's the good news. Um, and um, uh, two other points I would like to stress also from my talk today is that what we will also see is a very strong trend, and that's not unique to the Union, of course, is an integration increasingly between climate policy and energy policy, especially clean energy seen as a, as a tool uh, for, for uh, uh, reducing greenhouse gas emissions. And you will also see another very strong trend, and is that climate policy is becoming increasingly integrated with other policies. Uh, it's going into transportation, into agriculture, and so on and so forth. So when we discuss economic growth, uh, how to stimulate new jobs in the European Union, uh, climate change, climate mitigation, climate adaptation is becoming you know, integrated with these uh, economic uh, policy uh, in the economic policy thinking. And that, that's a big change 
uh, if you compare to when I started out working on climate policy uh, more than 15 years ago. Um, now, what is so special about the European Union then? If I start out with a few slides how the EU works, and I suppose you're quite familiar with this already. Um, well, as you know, it's an internal market to start with. We have four very important freedoms of movement in the European Union, of goods, services, labor, and capital. And because of this integrated internal market, of course, you need to, in very many areas, you need to have common legislation because you have the same, you need to have the same rules across borders because all these important things can move around. Therefore, EU legislation is, of course, as said, per definition, valid in all member states at once, right, when it's adopted. So it immediately covers 28 uh, national territories, countries, and a good 500 million of consumers or taxpayers, or citizens, at least. Um, now, how this legislation comes about is very special, uh, because you have, in a sense, two legislators. You have representatives of the member states, the 28 countries, and you have representatives sitting in the European Parliament who are directly elected. Uh, and you also, of course, have national parliaments, but in the EU legislative uh, cycle, it's the EU Parliament who has the say. And these two bodies, the Council of Ministers, so the, the Council representing the member states, they negotiate then with the European Parliament. That's how legislation is finally adopted. However, it's the European Commission, where I work, who has the privilege, the right of initiative. We are the ones who propose legislation. And as soon as it's proposed, we step back, we act as a facilitator, we have the technical competence and knowledge, legal expertise, etc. Uh, but it's up to the two other decision makers to decide what happens with the legislative proposal. Uh, what is also very important in European Union, and this requirement has been strengthened over the years, is that we have a very strong stakeholder consultation procedure. So we have public consultation uh, before tabling new legal proposals. And we also have, of course, ex very extensive consultation with specific stakeholders depending now on the subject matter. So climate, it might be uh, different kind of industry groups, NGOs, researchers, uh, trade unions, etc. Um, and I think that's also a reason why, so far, on climate legislation, we've been quite successful to get through most of what we propose, because it's been very carefully uh, vetted and, and, and discussed with important stakeholders and with the member states themselves, of course, before we propose. Um, here is another very important challenge when you do any legislation. Uh, or preparing new initiatives in the Commission for the EU level, and that is the sheer diversity of the European Union. Um, if you look at the difference in GDP per capita between the poorest member states, which I think still might be Bulgaria, and the richest ones, it will be in a factor of five or six. So it's a huge difference in income and economic capacity. Uh, on top of that, of course, countries are very different for other reasons. You have large countries like Germany with over 80 million uh, people. You have small countries, the smallest one have less than 1 million <coughs> inhabitants. Uh, you have in climate and energy policy completely different energy structure, what they rely on in terms for energy sources. Just give one example, if you look at power production in Europe, we have a country like Poland, which is totally reliant on coal for its power generation. While we have other countries like Sweden, for example, which relies 
uh, which can uh, uh, generate its electric power without any fossil fuels in principle. They are just using hydropower and nuclear. So, you know, and some of these countries, and because of their geographical, economic, or demographic structure, have very different uh, energy efficiency and the carbon intensity profiles. And all these things we have to factor in when we do our impact assessment and table uh, environmental le climate legislation. And the last point, if it's not already been made clear from what I said, most environmental and climate legislation is really on EU level. So most of the important legislative acts which affect citizens in the European Union in these two areas are EU legislation. So that's why it's so important for member states to follow very closely uh, uh, these uh, legal discussions. Okay, so after this short introduction to legislation, policy making, <coughs> challenges in the EU, let's move on to climate policy. Uh, this graph shows very well, I mean, in a nutshell, it shows what we have managed to achieve so far in the European Union and our challenges ahead. Uh, if you, uh, it shows the emissions of greenhouse gases uh, total of the European Union from 1990 through 2015. We also have preliminary figures for 2016. And it shows a good message here, namely that those emissions have dropped by 23% estimated for 2016, compared to 26 years earlier. That's a very good result. You can see a red symbol about 2020. That's our target for 2020. That's a 20% reduction compared to 1990. And we're already far below that. And so collectively, we seem to do just fine. There are a few member states actually who will struggle meeting their own national part targets as part of this EU-wide. Germany is now getting increasingly in trouble, which is interesting. Um, but as a whole, we're doing very fine. Uh, you will also see then the, the uh, graph then continuing after 2015 into 2030, and that is the projected emissions, the dotted line. And so you see it's projected with the measures and policies and legislation in place, it's projected to continue to drop, but it's not good enough because in 2030, the EU has decided we want to reduce emissions by 40%. That's the yellow symbol down there. And you see, especially in the last five years, before 2030, we will have a real challenge meeting it. So the Commission has presented proposals how to cover that gap, to reduce emissions further. Uh, and uh, that's it's now very close to get into uh, adoption, actually. I will tell you more about that in a moment. So basically, here you have a nice illustration of how well we've done, how, how good we've done so far, and the challenges ahead in terms of cutting emissions. Um, next graph shows another piece of good news. I told you in the beginning we managed to decouple economic growth from emissions. And here you can see it's a big difference, actually. Um, and um, you can see that this, de this decoupling has continued in the past few years despite uh, a strong economic recession around 2008, 9, 10 in many European countries. Um, so that's also good news, but we need to continue even strengthening this decoupling uh, over the next years to meet our longer-term targets. Um, also interesting, just to put this in context, you have three big countries, a group of countries, and their emissions per capita uh, until 2012. Uh, the EU is the blue line. You can see we have continuously been uh, reducing our capita emissions. 
you will see the United States on the top, which has actually done pretty good in, relatively speaking, in reducing per carbon emissions, but it's still, what is it? It's about twice as high in 2012 as European average. It's still much higher. And the biggest, most profound change for global emissions is what's happening in China. And I'm sure, I don't have for the latest five years on this graph, but I'm pretty sure that, uh, I don't know about the trend in the United States, but for Ch in China for sure, it has continued to increase. So you see uh, China now, not only because it's such a big country in terms of population, but because they have a quite a high carbon emissions rate. They are now coming out as the biggest single polluter emitter of greenhouse gases globally. So what happens in China is very important, but what happens in the United States and in Europe too is still important. So that's the message I wanted to convey with that graph. So what we now currently have in place in the EU uh, in terms of targets and objectives uh, is uh, the 20% reduction in 2020, as I told you. Uh, what is interesting to note with climate policy, I think, is this strong connection to science. So everything we do is guided by the latest recommendations by the scientific community. And internationally, it's under the Intergovernmental Panel for Climate Change, which every five or six year uh, updates, heavily peer-reviewed and vetted reports on all kinds of aspects on, on climate change, projections, uh, uh, options for mitigation, uh, risks, etc. And we are basically following or trying to follow in international treaties and in our EU internal legislation what science is recommending us. And already many years ago we set ourselves the target to try to contribute with our reductions in the EU to a stabilization of the global warming at maximum 2 degrees Celsius, so about 3.6 Fahrenheit uh, warming compared to pre-industrial levels. So we actually have a, a numerical target, if you like, or at least uh, uh, aspirational target. So this connection with science is very important. Uh, and for that reason, we need to update our policies in view of what science recommends us all the time. The other particular aspect that I want to highlight is the connection with uh, interaction with international agreements. Uh, so what we're doing in the European Union is very much driven by international agreements. And we are trying then in our, on our, in our turn to feedback and influence, of course, international action. So this is a very strong uh, dialogue, if you like, between EU internal and international agreements. And, of course, the, the major reason why we're doing it internationally is that it's a global problem. It's a transboundary problem, like many environmental problems, but it's a global problem. It's not only a problem within the EU. So what we emit here affects the whole uh, globe, or the whole world, not only a certain region, right? And the importance of climate policy has been further strengthened in the EU legislation because our fundamental treaties now rec recognize climate change as an issue that we need to deal with. And in the latest version of our constitution, if you like, the EU treaty, the Lisbon Treaty is called, 10 years old, you will have climate action uh, defined and included, introduced. So we have, of course, a very strong legal basis for everything to do. That's very, very important. We can go back to the treaty and say, this is something we need to do on EU level. So it's, it's, you know, it's, it's not up for discussion in that sense. 
Um, yeah, the other two points I think I already made in the beginning, the increasing mainstreaming across policies, that's another characteristic of climate policy, so it's influencing other sectoral areas, and because it's, uh, well, moving target is perhaps not the right expression, but it's something that's evolving all the time, so that's why we need to fine-tune and change our legislation all the time. No, I will spare you from going through every single line on this slide, but it's, it's good, I think, visually, because it shows how intensively it has stepped up and developed climate policy in the past 25 years. We started back in the early 90s because the European Union needed to prepare for the first international conference on uh, climate issues, environmental conference in Rio de Janeiro. You know what year that was, anyone? 92, that's when the United Nations Framework Convention for Climate Change was agreed. Under that, we have all the treaties that are now existing internationally. The aspirational two-degree goal, I mentioned, that already came up as a result of early IPCC recommendations and has since 96 been a, 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 a constant part of ministerial council declarations and conclusions that this is what we should, should aspire for in our contributions to emission mitigation. Uh, I would perhaps pick up three trends from this, this, this slide here. Um, one is what I already mentioned, it's becoming increasingly intensive. You will see every year now almost a new initiative, right? That's number one. Number two is the integration of climate and energy since about 10 years. 2009, we had the first joint climate and energy package, which was a bundle of legislative acts that were proposed by the Commission to set targets for 2020. And it has, we have followed with the same model. The latest batch was now uh, an agreement in principle in 2014, about a 40% emission reduction in 2030, by 2030. And it was followed in the next few years by another package then of legislation from our side of the commission. I will tell you more about that later. So that's number two, climate and energy integrated. And uh, number three, that's perhaps not so evident from this list here, but you will see an increased emphasis on long-term thinking, on long-term targets, on long-term strategies. Uh, the first attempt on our side was really in 2011 when we presented a roadmap 2050, which was simply a discussion paper shared with everyone in the European Union to start a discussion with stakeholders on what kind of strategies could we uh, adopt to really cut, make deep cuts in emission, because as you know, uh, in the European Union and industrialized countries, we should really cut our emissions by at least 80% in order to stabilize this global warming uh, by two degrees, at two degrees. And we're far from that, of course. And if you want to do these deep cuts, you really need to start rethinking how you design infrastructure, how you supply yourself with food, with fuel, and all these kind of things. Uh, this has become, it was not much, it didn't pick up very much in 2011, I think. It's fair to say, perhaps it's because the economic recession, so leaders in the European Union had other worries, but it's increasingly coming back, and we see now a number of member states who have adopted their own long-term 2050 climate and energy strategy. So this is something that's becoming with this, this long-term aspect. So it's not only now business with very expensive infrastructure installations like energy traditionally, that thinks very long-term, but now states and governments hear that, and they need that also to adapt to climate change, right? Because we know that global warming is happening, we can see things changing, 
like increased sea level, heat waves, etc. And that is also part of the long-term planning. So that was the third aspect, this long-termishness, if you like, becoming increasingly an issue. Um, okay, uh, again, I mentioned much of this already. <coughs> I just wanted to show you this slide too because it summarizes basically the rest I'm going to bombard you now with EU legislation in the next few slides. Uh, number one, what we have in place, that's 2020. That's already there. Uh, and that's a range of supporting uh, legal uh, acts to cut emissions collectively in the European Union by 20% compared to 1990 by 2020. And I show you we're, we're doing pretty well there. Um, interesting, this is interesting as an example of how quickly things actually can go in the EU because at first sight it sounds like horrible. You have 28 member states, you have a European Parliament, and these guys have to agree on every piece of the legal acts. And sometimes it can take two, three years from the proposal by the Commission until you have adoption of the legal and the final act with all these changes. But sometimes it can go really fast. And just show this as an example. In 2007, March, uh, the heads of state and government of the European Union met and said, okay, we want to cut our emissions by 20% we, uh, by 2020. We also want to increase our share of renewables and improve energy efficiency. So please, Commission, come up with a set of proposals as soon as possible. We did that. We came with the legislative package January 2008. Negotiations started, and in December the same year, 2008, Parliament and Council, <coughs> representing member states, had an agreement, and it entered into force most of these legal acts in 2009 already. That was really, really quick, and then we had a momentum of, of, of support on very highest level across countries, and it went really, really fast. And please remember that late 2008, we can see that we were deep in a deep economic recession, and I sometimes think that if we would have had any hiccups or delays in the negotiation, and had it gone into 2009, we might have had a much more difficult time getting the agreement. Because then, uh, I think, it was increasingly clear that many countries were in deep recession, actually, by 2009. Okay, so, example, what can happen really fast in the EU sometimes, when there is a strong political support for it. What we now are preparing, that's the second part, that's the 2030 objectives. 40% reduction is already agreed, but we need to translate that into legislation. And as you will see soon, we have uh, proposed a number of new uh, updates and uh, legislative acts to continue climate and uh, clean energy legislation to 2030. And most of that is now close to being agreed, actually, on the climate mitigation side, emission reduction side, we expect to have agreements in to, by the end of this year already. So that's moving ahead too. Okay, so now you take a deep breath because I'm going to go in the, the heavy part. Now, if you wonder why I do all these slides, <coughs> it's of course also because I would like to use this as a reference and I hope we will be able to share this with you. So I think it's a pretty good you know, reference uh, document if you like. So please, you know, forgive me for being quite heavy on the slides today. Um, I told you about the success story of, of proposing the 2020 package. Uh, I give you a bit more detail. Basically what we uh, proposed then from the Commission in January 2008 was a set of uh, two acts dealing with emission reductions. That was a revision of the EU's emission trading system which was already in place at that time. 
and new legislation to cap emissions in other sectors outside industry for national uh, countries, for, for individual countries. And on top of that, we had a set of energy legislation, which was also new, setting green, uh, sorry, renewable energy targets, basically saying that collectively the EU should have a share of its final energy use, uh, uh, contributed by renewable energy sources up to 20% in 2020. And we also wanted to increase energy efficiency, reduce the intensity of energy across the European economy. There was also a host of other pieces of supportive legislation, fuel quality, uh, uh, mandating to refineries and others to reduce the carbon intent. That might sound very strange, but you can actually do that by some blending and other things. Uh, and also CO2 limits for cars. So it was a very comprehensive package that all came out in uh, 2008, and most of these things went into force in 2009. There was also initiative for carbon capture and storage, actually, and that's perhaps the one piece that hasn't really been very successful. But already then we thought about ideas of capturing CO2 emissions from fossil plants and store it as, a, as another additional uh, complementary uh, mitigation tool. So that what was happened in 2020. That is the legislation we have in place now. And I'm trying now to explain to you how it works on the emission reduction side, because at first sight it looks quite complicated, but the basic concept is actually quite simple. So the challenge we had, remember, in the European Union was that we had very diverse countries in terms of fuel supply, uh, energy intensity, uh, uh, GDP per capita, uh, most importantly. And across sectors, we have some sectors where emission reductions are quite costly per ton emissions reduced, such as certain parts of transportation. Other parts where you have stationary, energy-intensive, big industrial plants, it's easier and cheaper to regulate. It's a cost, but it's still lower than in other sectors. So the rational was then to divide this total you know, emissions that we need to reduce in the whole of the EU across all sectors in two parts, roughly half-half. It's somewhat smaller in the emissions trading sector. And we need to break that down in some internal arithmetics because we could only find 2005 as the latest common year where we had statistics covering both sectors uh, in uh, emissions trading sector because it started that year and all other sectors. So we translated this 20% reduction in 1990 to a relative goal compared to 2005, right? Because the 2020 20% reduction is compared to 1990. Don't get stuck on the numbers. Just focus on the principle. So the EU ETS, there you have the emissions trading system, there you have all the energy intensive sectors like power producers, chemical industry, paper and pulp, iron and steel, so on and so forth. And there we set a cap for total emissions and we said that the relative emission reduction contribution of this sector, of these sectors, had to be larger than the rest because we saw it as the most cost effective option. So we put a stronger emphasis on that part. So, and there we have an emission cap, same thing for all installations across the whole of the European Union, regulated by one piece of EU legislation and some supporting legislative documents. That was one part. The other part was uh, for all the other sectors, transportation, agriculture, uh, heating of buildings, uh, non-electricity basically energy, and waste management. 
And there you have very different sectors, very different emission reduction potentials, very different profiles from member state to member state. And here we did a different approach. Here we simply said we will divide this overall EU target, which was a 10% reduction, across each country. They will get their individual targets based on their GDP per capita. So basically the richer country have tougher targets, the poorer have easier targets, or less tough, less strict. And then um, we do this division based on GDP per capita. Um, so there it's much simpler. There you simply say, okay, member state A, you have a, a reduction of X percent, and it's up to you what you want to focus on. If you want to focus on agriculture, transport, on, or uh, measures in buildings, it's up to you. But you have to report your emissions every year, and we're going to check you very closely, and by 2020 you have a legal obligation to meet your target. So that's basically the setup. Uh, you know, in a nutshell for 2020. Now, if we break this down, uh, and I will start with the last point I made, uh, I will give you some more details. So how does this then member state-specific targets work, which covers about half of emissions for these sectors you can see here, which are very diverse, um, and where the challenge is that there are very different cost-effective potentials. So their costs can range very much within sectors and between countries. So we then divided it up the way we did across member state. Then it looks like this. And if you go the far, what is it, right-hand side, you will see uh, the collective reduction from the EU, 10% compared to 2005, which in itself is the contribution to the 20% reduction overall by 2020, right? And you can see on the far right-hand side the poorest countries, like Bulgaria, Romania, per capita, uh, they were allowed even to increase their emissions, whereas the richest ones had to cut them by 20%. That were countries like Luxembourg, Denmark, Ireland at that time. And within this range, minus 20 equals plus 20, all member states had to comply. Um, and uh, I should perhaps also say that when these targets were proposed, everybody was assuming that we would have strong economic growth. So even these increases were limits in a sense compared to what was expected in terms of business as usual. It turned out a bit differently though. So this is the distribution of targets. So each of these 28 countries have this as a legal obligation that they have to report every year for the period from 2013 to 2020. Uh, and as you can see here, uh, it's quite a strict system because you have legal obligation to report and it's monitored by my organization, in fact, the unit where I work at this department, we are responsible for that. And if they don't meet their targets, they will have penalties, and they will have to show how they're going to make up for any emissions gap. And the commission then reports every year on behalf of the EU on progress across countries. So this graph I showed you in the beginning, it's, it's updated every year. And we also report to the UN, because under the UN, we have an international obligation under the Kyoto Protocol for 2020, and we accepted a new obligation under the Paris Agreement for 2030. So, ultimately, this whole setup of EU legislation, this whole setup of monitoring, reporting, member states, the Commission, the Commission on behalf of the European Union internationally, it's our way of following up our international commitments. But, in difference to many other countries, we have we have codified it in EU law on top of our international ratification. So it gives it a very strong, strong legal basis, of course, across the EU. 
So that, in short, is the how we deal with emissions in sectors outside the emission trading system, outside industry. Our emissions trading system is perhaps the one that you've read about, you've heard about, there's a lot of articles, uh, but it's a very simple idea. Uh, it started back in 2005 as a simple cap and trade system with a progressive target, so the cap is decreasing every year. And every installation knows then how much they can emit until 2020. And you have the same rules across countries. Um, and the allowances, the rights to emit, are distributed partly by auctioning, partly for free. And the auctioning is interesting because by selling these allowances to installations in the system of emissions trading, uh, you get revenues. And these revenues can be used by member states, mostly earmarked for clean energy or threat mitigation, but not necessarily all of this money. And it was an important negotiation shift or negotiation point when the legislation was made up in the first place, how to distribute these auctioning revenues, etc. Because it's not only ministers of environment who agree on behalf of their country, it's ministers of finance. And for them it's very important to find out, okay, ah, emissions trading, that means we get more money, that's very interesting. And we will always, not always, but very often have a fight within, across departments in the government, who gets success. But the intention, the ambition from the Commission, certainly in our proposal, was to earmark as much as possible these revenues so they recycle back to further uh, measures to cut emissions or promote clean energy. And you have a very, you will have a very, you had and will have, it seems, a very similar discussion in Washington State because there are also ideas and discussion about carbon tax here and how you're going to use any revenues, etc. So it's also always a key part of this is, is the, the how to use those things. Not only, of course, the carbon price as a, a price signal, uh, which is uh, a very important part of why we chose this instrument, of course. Uh, so two points I perhaps wanted to make here more strongly is that the cap, I told you, the, the good thing with the, with the cap and trade system is that you know what the cap is. So you can basically say, we know what the mission limit will be that and that year, in our case, 2020. So that's good. What, what you, in addition, you want to have a price signal evolving under the system so energy intensive polluting industries invest in clean technology. And they will only do that if the costs are high enough. Uh, and a permanent discussion item or, or theme in European Union's emission transition has, has been the price. Currently, I think the price, I didn't look now for quite some time, but I think it's below 8 euros. And most of service thinks this is too low. So the cap, you know, we're going to meet the cap, so that's fine. But it's too low to give a strong long-term price signal. And that's what we've basically been struggling with with all these legislative uh, updates and negotiations on political level. How do we make the emissions trading system stricter to get the price up over the next few five to ten years? And that's an, an important challenge for, I think, any such system. Okay, that was a bit about emissions trading. Uh, I just want to show you that this illustrates a progressive cap. And I should also point out that we already have legislation proposed and almost agreed that this uh, drop per year, which is currently 1.7%, it will increase, I think, to 2.2% reduction per year between 21 and 30. So that's, you know, it's a big deal for industry. You know, you have to tell that in all fairness. It's a lot of, they have accepted to take on themselves. Okay, what next? 
Uh, yeah, okay, I could, this basically summarizes some of the points I made. Uh, politically, why do you choose emissions trading? Well, one reason was that emissions tax was not possible in the European Union. There were already very early ideas about carbon tax, I think, in the 90s discussed. And the a simple reason why that never happened in the European Union collectively is that many countries, out of principle, did not want to defer the right to tax the European Union. Uh, countries like United Kingdom, some of the Scandinavian Nordic countries, and they still maintain this point very strictly. Uh, they defer already a lot of other rights in like, terms of legislation, but that was a no-go at that time. So we went for emissions trading. That was acceptable. And I just, as a kind of parenthesis, I just wanted to point out that we had basically no emissions trading in the European Union before 2005. UK and Denmark did some experimentation, but it was in the United States. You had you had a sulfur, uh, a, a trading system for I think mostly power plants, a sulfur and a, a nitrogen oxide NOS. So the idea is that's a you know, irony if you like, or an interesting observation at least, put it mildly, is that the emissions trading system was first tried in the United States. We brought it over and did a big bang from nothing to this enormous market that we had. Uh, so just interesting to see how it managed to take off, you know, in the European Union. I told you it's not only about regulating emissions, it's about giving price signal to spur innovation, that is based innovation in clean technology. Uh, so that's why the price signal is important, I explained that already. Um, you have to realize also that another aspect given that our industry was the first in the world that accepted to take on a trading, a cap, emission trading system is what they call carbon leakage. It's a lot of fear, or at least they argue very, uh, very actively that you know if you put too strict rules on us, our industry will move out in the European Union and emissions will just move. That's carbon leakage. We cannot see, from as far as I know, any such evidence so far. Um, so it seems to have been an overstated this fear, but it's very much there when we discuss future to emissions trading, so it always comes back. And I told you about auction revenues, how it can be recycled back. Okay, small deep breath, you passed most of the heavy stuff. Uh, you know, when you paint through the slides, when you get them later, this is one is nice to keep, because it summarizes very well where we stand, and I'm now chipping in the clean energy legislation. You remember I mentioned it was not only mitigation measures that were put in place for 2020, the upper row here in this slide, but also some for energy efficiency renewables. And I show this because it summarizes what we have in place for 2020, clean energy, uh, greenhouse gas emission reductions, and it shows what we have proposed for 2030. And a few things interesting to note. Uh, so 20% uh, energy efficiency, I should firstly explain for 2020, simply means that we should improve our energy efficiency, reduce the intensity of energy, the amount of energy consumed per, per GDP. Um, and we're doing pretty well on those targets as well. Again, individual countries struggling, but EU as a whole seems to be fine in meeting the three, the 2020, 2020, in 2020 targets. You can imagine with a very nice press release in 2008 when we proposed this. I'm sure they thought about this very seriously, our communication people, not only us who had to do the impact assessments. So that's what we have. Now, 2030 is what we came out with in 2015 and 16. So before I came here, in September to Seattle, 
I was busy negotiating and preparing the part of the greenhouse gas emission legislation for 2030. Uh, and we had very intensive negotiations, and I hear now from Brussels that they are going very well, and we are close of having a deal between the Council and the European Parliament on the emissions trading system for the period of 2030, and prolonging this, you know, remember, the system of national targets, each country have their individual targets for all the other sectors, we're going to continue that model, but now every country is going to have a negative target, from, so from zero to minus 40%. So you can imagine countries like the richer Nordic ones, they will have close to 40% emission reduction in those sectors by 2030, um, uh, compared to the emission figures. That's a big step up. You will note that for renewable and energy efficiency, these symbols mean at least. It has been more difficult to convince all stakeholders, especially member states, to do an ambitious step up comparable to what we did for emission reductions. So it's settled now for 27% for these two, uh, for prolonging the legislation and the renewable share of economy and an efficiency target. What I hear from the European Parliament that tends to be more ambitious than national governments is that they want tougher targets. Uh, member states don't. So we will see that nego those negotiations might go into 2018, perhaps, before we have a deal. But they are also you know, getting close. And um, perhaps I should also mention that sometimes when I show these pictures, I will get questions, so, okay, why do you have three targets? I mean, if the, if the objective is to cut emissions, you could just have an emission reduction target and leave the rest. It's up to you know, countries and stakeholders to decide what they want to do to reach those targets. And it's a good point, and some would agree with that, I suppose. But uh, the story behind, and I'll come to that in a moment on the energy side, was when, 2007, we got these recommendations from the Council to come up with legislation. There was a very strong push for energy independence. Uh, energy safety, cutting energy costs, because a lot of countries were dependent on gas from Russia. And we had a very cold winter, 2006-2007, when the Russians turned off the pipeline to Ukraine. And it was very cold in some of the states. And that focused leaders' minds. And because of this energy safety, energy security, energy cost drivers, all of a sudden there was a strong push. Well, renewables energy efficiency, you know, that's the ticket. And of course that coincided with what we had already independently running, the climate policy track, if you like. So it concluded very nicely. And I think personally that the strong reason why we managed to get this legislation so fast through was that it was a very strong drive among countries to do something on the energy side, right? And this interest con continues. I will not speak much more about that, but we have now what we call an energy union in the European Union, where we are increasingly coordinating all kinds of energy policies. And it so happens I have a few slides about that too if you can bear with me. Uh, and what is interesting to note is, of course, this, this uh, energy policy and climate policy drivers and interests that, that could reach a common objective. And that helped a lot in driving climate policy forward. The European Union has helped a lot in the past 10 years. But the energy policy is wider than just cutting emissions. 
And there, too, we have had a very fast development because energy issues, I remember when I worked for national government before I joined the European Commission, 15, 20 years ago, energy union, nobody would ever talk about it because that was national competence. You don't mess with our energy systems, basically. Commission, go home kind of thing. <laughs> After 2007, it was a completely different interest. We really need to coordinate, you know, we need to do more. And this has two this area also being now codified in our basic treaty. Very interesting. Functioning of energy market, there we can do much more. Remember, we have an internal market, but in all truth, the energy part is not functioning that well as it could do. We need to do more there. And all the things I mentioned are in there. So there, too, you have a very strong legal basis for everything we're doing on renewables and uh, energy efficiency. And. Uh, on renewable, I just wanted to, you know, a few highlights. Uh, this is also a very, you know, it, it's not only in Europe, a lot of things that happen in clean energy, in the United States, North America, many other countries. So it might also be of interest to you. Uh, so there too, we have just been very quickly describing national targets for renewables, depending on the circumstance of the country. So there are like for emission reductions outside ETS, the renewable the targets are national and they are diversified, right? And it's pretty much up to member states to decide how they want to promote this. And what we have been seeing in the past five years is that promotion of being done very differently. You have had all kinds of support systems for solar panels, for wind energy, etc. And then member states, depending on their budget, economic strengths, and so on, they have pulled away sometimes the support. So you have a bit of a roller coaster ride. And it's not necessarily harmonized across the European Union. So all these effects of all of a sudden introducing a renewable targets across the European Union is something we deal with very much now and that's why it's discussed so heavily. Should we have a more ambitious target for 2030? Should we just have an EU-wide target? It seems we're going in that direction and not having individual targets anymore. How do we do accounting? All these things need to be solved but the important message here is basically that we're moving in Europe uh, in a direction towards more renewables and there are some external factors that have contributed, and that is the lower costs and lower price of solar and wind energy. That was perhaps not anticipated five, six, seven years ago. A few things, also again, is interesting, policy implementation. These are things that turn up when you try to implement these things in reality. Very interesting and challenging things. Uh, Cost-effectiveness and market integration. Market integration across the European Union when you have a lot of national different support system is a challenge. Uh, you're going to have a lot of discussions. Is it really cost-effective to give a lot of support for solar panels and so on and so forth? And people then often tend to forget that we have similar support system and still have for fossil fuels, for nuclear energy, etc. So that's not unique to renewables. But of course you can have a discussion. Is it reasonable to spend an amount of money on certain targeted energy uh, technologies. Um, what is very interesting, what we see in our daily life, are these interactions between renewable support system and emission trading, for example. Because what happens if you introduce more renewable energy for installations that are under the emission trading system, they will reduce their emission. They're shifting fuels from carbon to carbon neutral fuels, right? So that will depress the price further on. We already have a cap. So there's a lot of discussion on how this will interact with each other. And then some say, if we have a too ambitious renewable target, it will press down prices of the ETS system. Others say, but we need to push for more renewables because 
uh, then we will uh, have a fully fledged uh, energy market, and that's the only way uh, with renewable energy sources, the only way to support it that way. Uh, it also interacts a lot with agriculture and forest policy because land use, you know, biofuels, where do you take it from? You have an alternative, you can do food crops, you can do feed crops, or you can do energy crops. So these issues then engage a completely new group of stakeholders, namely landowners and farmers. So you have all kinds of other discussions popping up. And the final very important point is environment, air quality and land use, possible negative effects of increasing the use of renewables. Um, you will have something similar for, for uh, energy efficiency. I will skip those slides. i just show them for you briefly. Uh, you know, we have very simple cross-cutting policy interaction issues when you come from the energy efficiency corner. Uh, I think one particular challenge, and that's again not unique to the European Union, is that if you want support uh, reduced energy cost, improved energy efficiency of buildings, uh, actually one group you should target are low-income groups because they have a much higher share of their disposable income that they need to spend on energy. But you can probably see where most of different supports have gone for solar panels and small wind power that there have been for other groups who don't necessarily have a very high share of, of, of uh, energy costs in their total income, right? And that is a big dilemma, and especially when you deal with multi-family, very big, big buildings, right? So that's a, a classical issue that comes back when uh, implementing energy efficiency. But what I just wanted to show for today is basically to, to remind you that we actually have a lot of legislation in place on energy efficiency in the European Union. And this is not talked about much, you don't see it very often, but this is you know, EU legislation when it's very effective and very low-key because the two first things here, standard for energy consuming, electricity consuming appliances mostly, and energy labeling for customers, you can see how much a washing machine or a dryer consumes, they are very important pieces of standardizing equipment because we have an internal market. So if you release a wash dishwasher or something on the EU market, it needs to fit with 500 million people. So we have common standards. And therefore, it was easy, relatively, to agree on energy efficiency, energy consumption standards for these appliances. And there you have very dull working groups of people like myself, sit from the European Commission, with experts from the national countries, from industry, from consumer groups, and they agree on standards. And then they go into force. And they, we have seen when we do our, our ex-post analysis of what has contributed to emissions, you can see that these kind of standards actually contribute very, uh, very much to emission reductions and improve energy efficiency. So they're very powerful instruments because they apply two things that are used, appliances across the EU at the same time, everywhere on the market. We also have legislation more general, high level on energy efficiency to implement these uh, energy efficiency goal, 20% improvement by 2020. And we also have a common legislation for building. That is more challenging because building that really, really uh, have very different conditions between, say, northern Finland, where you have you know, winters like in, in central Canada, uh, and Mediterranean countries where the main issue is cooling. Uh, but that also is something that is being updated and also discussed a lot from member state perspective given their different conditions. Okay, so if you still have some attention span and wits about you, I will now try to move on to the National Park uh, before I open for questions. Is there, was there anything in this 
climate and energy policy in the European Union that was unclear. That was really, you did not understand at all. Let me know now. Okay, then we'll save that for questions later. Okay, so I also wanted to tell, talk a bit about international climate negotiation, why it's so important for the European Union, why it's, it's so important in itself. And you see here many happy faces and happy people, 2015, November, or was it already December 2015, in Paris. The Paris Agreement, what is that all about? Um, I think the important note to make two years after is that there is very strong support globally for Paris Agreements, which is the international agreement now to cut emissions long term, where, which every single country in the UN has signed, as far as I know. You can look it up on the UNFCCC.int webpage. I think it's 170 or 197 countries that have uh, ratified. So I think all have signed, and the US is still in, by the way. Um, so that's a very good message. They have, they have a big jamboree every year, two weeks, where they fly in ministers. This year it was in Bonn, and it's hosted normally by a different country. This country was the Fiji island this year, and they had to do it in Bonn because Fiji island doesn't have facilities for 25,000 people flying in. Um, and so that was in Bonn, and you know, the good news was that people are still, there's still a major support despite all the global and regional crisis we have. Um, and the EU was particularly happy, I want to show this as well, this is really nice, this is like EU EU presentation, right? Uh, look at the last point down there. Yeah, and I think it's, it's warranted actually, this time it is definitely, I mean we all want to put a good face in what we're doing, uh, companies, countries, etc. in the press releases, but this was really true because the EU worked very hard behind the scenes for two years after Paris Agreement to get this agreement. And why was that? Because of several reasons, of course. Firstly, the Kyoto Protocols, what we have now internationally, are very limited. The second Kyoto Protocol, which is valid until 2020, basically only being signed and ratified by the EU and some friends. So we're about 30 countries. And that's not good enough. You need to have all in, right? And the Kyoto Protocol didn't work for many reasons. Work in the sense that you get a broad support because it sets targets, it's very akin to EU legislation. And very many countries, also industrialized ones, are not ready to agree to such solutions. They're not ready to put themselves under international compliance system. Um, you know, each country has their own reasons. Not only is the US traditionally very skeptical about UN scrutiny or national failure, or many other countries that have the same position. So for the EU, this was a great step ahead because we now have a truly worldwide global agreement. And for us, of course, as I explained many times uh, already, it's not good enough. Even if we cut our emissions by 40%, we do all kinds of things with renewables. We are still only, I think now we're below 10% of total emissions of greenhouse gases globally. So we need to have all the other countries in. And we know that we don't only need to have the big other industrial countries like Russia, the United States, and so on. We also need to have those countries where emissions are growing the fastest and where emissions now are, uh, which had the highest emissions, like China. We have countries like Indonesia, India, Brazil, and so on. All these need to start taking some kind of measures. Otherwise, you know, we will have a big problem. We will be, you know, remember the Congress of the Dinosaurs that I showed you in the beginning. 
So for the EU, of course, we work very consciously, very hard with all kind of developing countries uh, and uh, to listen to them, what are your concerns, how should we set up a global agreement. France, which was hosting the Paris Agreement, was very active. And one advantage coming from a small country like myself, I'm from Sweden originally, is when you work in this big club, you will have some really big countries like France, United Kingdom, Germany, even Spain that have a huge diplomatic network. Some of these countries have a legacy, you know, of the colonial past, France, UK, Spain, even Portugal. But that means that they have very good, you know, other networks, Commonwealth in the UK, what is it called, is the Francophonie across the world for the French speakers. Spain is very active in Latin America. So they put, you know, their diplomatic efforts in talking to these countries in their own language. And the commission, we have a commissioner, I didn't tell you how the commission is is governed, but we basically have 28 commissioners, like a, 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 a collective of ministers, if you like, one appointed from each member state, and they are then responsible for different policy areas. The guy who is responsible for climate change and energy is a Spaniard. Uh, his name is Ares Cañete. He, nobody knows about the commissioners usually outside, but they also do an important work, right? They are the political face outwards uh, from the commission. Anyway, so a lot of groundwork covered, a lot of negotiations, a lot of discussions. And that was very important in getting a successful broad agreement. One should also mention, of course, now I'm very much focused on EU, but I think, of course, that the fact that the United States administration worked very close with China was, of course, a key. We tried once before, I can show that slide actually. Here, did, you know, the, the timeline of the United Framework Convention on Climate Change from 1992 and onward. 2009 in Copenhagen was supposed to be a kind of Paris agreement, but it flopped totally. You had Obama, you had the heads of state in India, China flowing in from the EU member state, and they couldn't agree because the groundwork hadn't been done. And perhaps we were not ready collectively with developing and, and uh, uh, evolving country economies to reach an agreement. So the point I'm trying to make is why is EU so supportive? I gave you the reasons. Uh, we are used to work multilaterally. We need to have others aboard. We have a strong tradition of working with developing countries because many of the developing countries were former colonies. So we have already well-established structure of cooperation, support, and financial aid in the EU with these countries. And now we are adding adaptation and mitigation to that. So we're mainstreaming foreign assistance uh, very strongly on the climate side. And thanks to the fact that we have all these member states working as collective, because the EU internationally negotiates as one. So sometimes it takes a long time for us to agree. But when we agree, we have a very strong voice, right? And we can move others forward thanks to these connections that I tried to make. Now, I think on the Paris Agreement, again, taking home points is something we want to uh, uh, summarize. I would simply do with a slide. Uh, you can learn a lot on about Paris Agreement and UNFCCC on their webpage. And uh, before forgetting, I should tell you also that the, the webpage that my organization, my department is hosting, you just Google or uh, Bing or whatever you do, Climate Action European Union or Climate Action European Commission, you will have everything in more detail than you ever wanted to know on all our different policies. And I just you know, highlighted a few of them. And you will have really, they're really informative, a lot of good stuff there. 
And you can also download annual reports on how we're doing in emissions. You can see how it goes across sectors, across countries, if you're number crunches. And uh, while I'm at it, I should also recommend you to look for an European Environment Agency. That's the commission agency responsible for collecting environmental data, including greenhouse gases. There you will find a lot of stuff too. Okay, so what is on this slide? And again, I have to turn over and getting starting to hurt here. Um, yes, I told you Paris Agreement is replacing Kyoto Protocol. I told you why. And the third point here is very important. It's a very open-ended uh, agreement. The important thing you will find further down, what we have agreed is a procedure, a process for regularly reviewing and updating national commitments. And they look very, very different. Some countries, like the EU, have taken quite tough emission reductions. Others have said that they're going to stabilize emissions and then at the later point starting reducing them. Others have simply said that we're going to improve our emission intensity. That doesn't necessarily mean you're going to reduce your total emissions, right? Uh, but we cannot, and the idea is then that we're going to, from 2018 and onwards, every fifth year, reviewing our pledges, all these parties and update them from 2020 and onwards. So in the EU, as soon as we're done with this very difficult negotiation of 2030 targets, uh, I hope next year, early next year, we will soon start thinking about, okay, what's going to go next time? And then we need, we need to update and we will have countries and stakeholders, NGOs, reminding us, okay, 40%, nice, but not good enough. You need to, you know, so it's a continuous procedure. Um, so I think this is important to notice. The Paris Agreement doesn't do any wonders in itself, but we have now a commonly, that's why everyone was so worried that US or somebody else would wreck the process perhaps, but that didn't happen, and that's very important. So the first important review is next year. So basically these guys are gonna to continue to meet and discuss in France. I think there is a big, that's not under the UN though, meeting in San Francisco in September hosted by the outgoing Governor Brown. Uh, and the point I should perhaps make before I break, so you have some, at least in half an hour for questions, is that what happened in Bonn, do I have a slide on that? I do. Is highlights this annual big conference with 12,000 negotiators and as many uh, stakeholders and hanging arounds and what you want. Uh, Show some important trends. Namely, the third point, you have a strengthened role for other actors. Non-federal non-national, cities, businesses, NGOs, and we are getting you know, bottom-up bottom pressure in addition to the top-up negotiation. And that creates a very interesting dynamic. And from what I hear from Bonn was that the United States was very well represented. That one of the largest delegations ever, but it was not the federal delegation this time. It was people coming from all other kinds of the climate aliens, you know, a number of governors representing states and cities and so on. Um, so that's very important. Um, and the first point before I close is this Paris rule book. I didn't mention that under the Paris Agreement. I, you know, we're focusing on cutting emissions. But a very important aspect for developing countries uh, is financing. Because basically, if I simplify very much the discussion about global, is basically the South is telling the North, you guys messed up this world. You've been emitting uh, greenhouse, gas, uh, greenhouse gases for 100, 200 years. You were the ones, you have the historic debt, right? And it's hard to counter that argument. The problem is just that even if we recognize and do something about it, we still have problems of China and India and New York, so we need to do both, right? But for the really poor countries, 
who have huge challenges, demographic uh, development, economic, of course, they need to have financial and capacity support, and somebody needs to provide that money. So not only is it expected that the richer countries do more in emission reduction, it's also expected from us that we contribute financial assistance. And that is a very important part of negotiations. And many of the developing countries, they also negotiate as a bloc or different groups. They will not agree to the whole setup until they feel satisfied with financial pledges and that these pledges are reviewed and updated. So it's much more than just emission reduction. It's, uh, it's adaptation, it's economic uh, development issues. And for some small island cities, they, uh, cities, states, they are virtually fighting you know, for the future of their small country. So it's very, you know, very serious issues. So you have to understand the question is not why can't we agree faster and more. The real question I have to ask you if you've been in these negotiations, which I have myself for seven years, and you get frustrated sometimes, is that how come that they don't, you know, how could they come up with an agreement in the first beginning that they have so different views? So I think still with the enormous challenges ahead, I would like to finish on a positive note and that we do have a, a global momentum. It goes very slowly. It's a lot of other things on leaders' mind. But what I take home, and that's one of the reasons why I'm here, is that what's very encouraging is to see everything that's happening on local level. So it's not only people like me representing an international organization or national uh, you know, climate negotiators and experts that are doing stuff, but it's also a lot of other local actors. And I, I think it has to be the, that way. Last picture. Uh, again, food for thought. Because when you see these things, you, then you know, that's the least the question on your side. So you know, why do you think? Agree, it's just evident. You get all these other benefits on top of cutting emissions. But the reality is a bit more complex, right? That was the message I wanted to, to give you. And my last words before we have some questions and answers. Uh, whatever, I mean, what I experienced in my professional life, because I ended up in this, I had no idea that I would do this even 15 years ago or 20 years ago. And I had a completely different background in many ways. Whatever you do, if you're social scientist, natural scientist, whatever you're going to do in your professional life, working for government, non-government, business, do something on your own, you will have to deal with this issue. Uh, so the bad <laughs> news is that you, know, you can't escape this issue because they're really serious. And what we can see now is that they're usually translated to local issues uh, which has to do with sustainability, economic development, jobs, and these kind of stuff. But the good side is it's a very interesting field of work and you will all the time interact with people from different backgrounds. Uh, both professional and in other ways, and that's really very nice. So be prepared for this. I hope you will uh, continue to be somehow involved in this issue in the future. If not, I hope it was a useful lecture. And if you want more information, please visit our website. And now I'm ready for questions. Thanks. <laughs>